welcome everybody to First Fuel, a show where we talk about the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in New Zealand and around the world. Uh, I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and I want to acknowledge that I am standing today on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I'm absolutely delighted uh, that we're joined today by the Honourable Megan Woods. Megan is the Minister for Energy and Resources, Minister for Housing, Minister for Building and Construction and Associated Minister for Finance. And really importantly for us here in Australia has carriage of New Zealand's incredibly ambitious programs around energy efficiency and and decarbonisation, along with uh, some of her colleagues in the ministry. Um, and of course, here in Australia, uh, Minister, we are uh, a moment of renewal in terms of our energy and climate policies. The Albanese government uh, elected just a, a couple of months ago, I know Prime Minister Adern and uh, the Prime Minister Albanese have already had the opportunity to trade records and, and perhaps a few reflections on uh, incoming governments and uh, what's what's possible, particularly in the energy and climate space. So we're delighted to have you with us. Uh, thanks for making the time. No, absolute pleasure, Luke, um, and wonderful to be able to hear to talk to you about New Zealand's experience. I think um, the future of Australia and New Zealand in terms of our energy policy and uh, making sure that we are setting ourselves up for a renewable, a renewables future um, and decarbonising and making sure we're having efficient and therefore affordable energy systems, so whether that be for industry or for uh, people heating their homes, I think the more that we can do, the better, the stronger that we are um, in terms of that and the more that we can learn from each other. So really value the opportunity to have this conversation. I suppose uh, one of the things that I'm really excited by is that, you know, that longstanding commitment to renewables in, in New Zealand, obviously a different uh, mix of supply, but also a long-standing commitment for, to energy efficiency. We'll get into that. We'll get into the Warmer Kiwi Homes Program and the significant investments in industry decarbonisation the government's recently announced. But let's start at a high level. Uh, what's New Zealand trying to achieve? What, what, what is uh, the task that New Zealand has set itself in terms of emissions reduction targets? So they're ambitious tasks. Um, so we've set ourselves um, um, net zero by 2050. Um, so that, that is ambitious. But then by 2030, 2030 is also 100% renewable electricity. Um, that's electricity. So New Zealand's currently, depending um, how sunny it is or how much wind is blowing, um, is around 85% renewable electricity, that we're blessed with a lot of um, natural resources in that area. Not only do we have hydro, uh, but we also have the um, the real advantage of having the ability to have uh, thermal baseload through geothermal energy, um, which is a, a really incredible resource that we're able to utilise. So um, hydro, geothermal, um, wind, um, and solar is starting to become more of a factor within that system as well. So um, these are ambitious goals um, and that um, there's a lot of work that we need to do to get there. So while we've got 85% renewable electricity, our energy system itself is only 40% renewable. When you put in place the industrial and process heat, transport emissions, all those kind of other things that in order for us to reach our climate goals, um, we have to reach. But more than just having our goals, um, we pass climate legislation in our first term in government um, that um, 
um, puts in place emissions reduction plans that we've just completed. And these are the very detailed carbon budgets, really, um, right down at sector level of what each sector, what contribution it has to make to a series of carbon budgets. The first one coming up in 2025 and energy is right out there in that. So we've got a lot of work to do. So uh, this is in, this is really interesting to me because we're, we're obviously at a moment uh, in Australia where we're in the process of legislating our uh, 2030 emissions reduction target. Correct me if I'm wrong, Minister, I think you've got a a 50% emissions reduction target by 2030. Is that right? That's right. And it's also, I think we're the only country to have um, legislated um, limiting limiting to 1.5 degree increase as well. So um, uh, New Zealand, um, one of the, the biggest challenges that we face in terms of our emissions reductions, of course, is the fact that 49% of our emissions come from the agricultural sector. Um, so that they're biogenic, um, so it's either methane or nitrous oxide, and that's then converted into carbon equivalencies. But um, that obviously is a much longer-term um, reduction, so it means that we're having to do a lot of heavy lifting um, in energy and transport in those first carbon budgets. Often New Zealand has quite a unique, for a developed com- country, quite a unique carbon um, emissions profile. Um, in some ways, it looks more like a develop a developing country uh, because of the predominance of um, the biogenic emissions that are there as well. Or the other way of looking at it is what developed countries are going to look like in 20 years once they've cut the lowest hanging fruit in terms of their carbon emissions and they're left with more of their biogenic emissions um, in order to the challenges that they face. So um, the, the, we've got a lot of similarities with with um, com- with a number of countries in the OECD, but I think some important differences, which will be important for people to kind of watch as they get through their own emissions profiles. I've actually just returned from Europe and I've been learning a little bit about uh, the different approaches that the European nations ca- take to uh, their target setting, uh, their carbon budgets. And it, it does seem to be emerging as a bit of a be- best practice uh, to have not just the high level target, but actually break it down sector by sector and make it clear what you're, you, you're uh, hoping to do, uh, what your ambition is in each of those sectors. Can you explain why New Zealand took that approach and, and why you regard it as important to get down to that level of granular detail? Yeah, and actually the model for us was the UK um, and the the carbon budgets um, that the UK had um, put in place. Uh, One of the really important elements of this was um, getting um, um, bipartisan or multipartisan in the New Zealand case because of our MMP environment, but getting multipartisan support in the House. So um, not only did our government of um, Labour, Greens and New Zealand's first support it in that first term, but we also got the National Party, the, the major opposition party, the Conservative Party on board too, to support it. A big part of that actually was the genesis of the of where um, the UK had come from on this. That it, actually it was the British Conservatives that was that first came up with this. Um, and um, Lord Ashton, a Conservative peer, came to New Zealand, spoke to um, the the National Party caucus and really broke down any idea that this was a matter of left or right politics. And I think that was really useful. Of course, uh, one of the first politicians in the UK that was probably really aware and cognizant of climate change was Margaret Thatcher. She was a chemist by training, um, a scientist, took a scientific approach to it and could see the evidence that was emerging. So that allowed us to do it. But the really important thing is it stops the debate about, 
you know, what are we going to do? It takes the politics out of a lot of the debate. We've all signed up now to to, um, what our emissions reductions have to be, and all the parties agreed on that. You then have to put emissions reduction plans that sit below those targets. So we know exactly. So if we're not going to cut as much in agriculture in the first two budgets, that means we have to make it up in transport and and energy. And what are we going to do? What are we going to do with our building systems um, to give our agriculture sector enough time to catch up? All those kind of considerations have to be put. And we have to think about those trade-offs in our economy really hard. That's certainly the impression and the feedback that I got in Europe as well, is that it it, it sort of uh, really focused the mind of policymakers. So an emissions reduction a target, you know, it's a great thing to have on an economy-wide level, but to a certain degree, without those sectoral targets, it can be a little bit all care and no responsibility. Um, someone's doing it rather than it being anyone's particular job to, to sort of roll up their sleeves and, and make a contribution in, in, in a particular policy-making area. And so one of the things that I heard um, when I was in Europe is it's a great way of getting that whole-of-government approach. So the various different ministries uh, that have those deep and abiding relationships, those those collaborative relationships with different parts of the economy, um, have a clear sense of what their bit of the task is, We're obviously working with the central agencies that are, that are sort of coordinating that broad, broader emissions reduction uh, task. Yeah, so not only do we have a climate group of ministers who are responsible within their portfolios for making sure that that work is being done, that the policy work is being done, but we also have a a group of climate chief executives of the various government ministries and agencies that have responsibilities in this area. And um, they're held to account um, as well within the structures that it has to be a priority for for their agency. I think one of the other really critical things that I like about it is too often that climate um, policies become a political football that can just be punted back and forward. So if a political party comes out and says, we're not going to do X, they need to say what um, W and Y are that they're going to do to make up for not doing X. It actually brings a whole lot more rigour to the debate um, and I think depoliticizes it and makes it one of evidence. And I think that's a really important place for us to get in relation to something as important as decarbonisation, that there, there's kind of, uh, it can take some of the childness out of politics. And anytime you can do that, that's a good thing, I think. <laughs> I'd certainly endorse that. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, New Zealand's proud history in this space. Of course, energy efficiency has, has been a real focus of government for a long time now. I think the Energy Efficiency and Conservation Authority formed way back in 2000. So it has over two decades in terms of activity in this space, not just driving energy efficiency. It um, has, has some uh, some programs focused on the renewable side of the ledger as well. Can you take us a little bit uh, through some of the history around that, um, why energy efficiency has been so important to New, New Zealand and New Zealand policy making in a way that it kind of hasn't had that same sort of institutional focus here in Australia. So I'm fascinated by how that emerged. Yeah, and I think that the, the real driver behind the um, the Energy Efficiency and Conservation Authority was um, the, the co-leader of the Greens Party, um, even before we had an MMP environment who came into Parliament. And this was one of the, the things that really kind of worked through in terms one of those early um, coalition agreements um, in our MMP environment that, I mean, I guess it's founded now, which I think is, um, I've just been to Europe as well, um, that actually foregone generation that we can drive through energy efficiency is the greenest form of energy that we can ever put in place. 
Um, not only from my perspective, not only is it incredibly important in terms of meeting our climate goals, but in terms of the kind of the outcomes we see in terms of affordability for households, the ability to pay their power bills, um, the, the health benefits that we get from people living in warm, dry homes, um, the foregone health expenditure that comes out of that. Absolutely. Um, you can demonstrate it. And we've actually had uh, PwC do some work working out kind of what the return factor on some of our home insulation programs are in terms of health spend. And it's a really good cost benefit analysis, as you'd expect. And I think that these are that a lot of this work predated in many ways a lot of the more detailed climate work. Uh, but it's given us an agency that's ab- absolutely set up around decarbonisation because not only did it work with, with homes trying to reduce power bills, but also for industry. The, um, the less uh, the use, less energy you use in your business or in your processing or in your industrial process, actually the cheaper it is that you're saving costs within your business. So amazing relationships uh, with the private sector in terms of entrusted relationships when it came to having that decarbonisation conversation as well. I think a, a real gem of the New Zealand political infrastructure and what makes up our ability to, to move things forward. It's a, it's a crown entity. Um, It has an independent board, which the government appoints that board. Um, And obviously that we set expectations as a government of what we'd like it to do. But certainly when I became the Minister of Energy in 2017, um, you know, I think the first speech I gave to the staff at ICA, as we call our agency, was your time has come. (laughs) We're a government that is absolutely committed to decarbonisation and to getting health outcomes for people. And that is exactly what you've been set up to do. The thing I really like about Eco, it has been thinking in a really granular way about how people use energy behind the meter in their day to day lives, in the in the in the prosecution of their businesses, um, and that's kind of a, a, a huge chunk of the the tasks that we have in terms of reducing our emissions and ultimately decarbonising our economies. Way anyway, you can have these big high level conversations and talk about targets, and that's obviously important, but it's actually about it's about families and it's about business owners and it's about specific conversations in particular parts of the economy and an energy efficiency body is necessarily thinking in quite a detailed way about all of those different moving parts around behavior and technology and so forth and what it means in people's lives and that segues very neatly into a conversation about how one decarbonizes um, reduces emissions while maintaining that quality of life while maintaining productive businesses right Absolutely. And as I said, that New Zealand only has 40% um, renewables in its, in its broader energy system. So we've still got a lot of work to do. Um, the, in the South Island, uh, where a lot of our primary, um, pr- um, our primary processes in terms of our, our agricultural sector, our food production happens, coal is still being used, obviously really high emissions. Um, that is something that we need to absolutely um, move um, if we're going to meet, if we have even a snowball's chance of meeting any of our emissions reduction targets within energy. In the North Island, we have a mixture of coal and gas because we have reticulated gas in the North Island, not in the South Island. Um, And how we have those conversations um, that are constructive and productive and actually um, that government can form strong partnerships um, with with industry to make sure that we are doing the decarbonisation at a pace and scale that meets all of our needs. 
We can't just rely on our emissions trading scheme and the price on carbon as being the way to do this. Um, if we were to do that, we'd have to have, um, in some instances, carbon pricing at $200 a tonne New Zealand in order for people to make those decisions today. So uh, one of the things that we've been able to put some schemes in place and ECA administer, uh, but government funding, of how is it that we can bring forward projects that, um, that businesses might have on their books a decade down the track, but we need to, them to do them today. Hey team, uh, I am very excited to have a co-host for this week's Ad Read, the Energy Efficiency Council's own Holly Taylor. Holly, great to have you with us. Very happy to be here for an Ad Read. So uh, Holly, uh, what exciting thing from the world of the Energy Efficiency Council would you like to tell our audience about today? Well, we are fast approaching the end of the financial year, which means for anybody that has purchased, installed, and indeed is using new assets, particularly those that are saving energy, we would encourage you to use the Commonwealth Government's temporary full expensing measure, which is a tax depreciation incentive. This tax incentive is available until 30 June 2023, which means assets purchased, installed, and ready for use by 30 June 2023 are eligible for a full instant asset write-off. Hey, Holly, uh, if only there was a guide that would uh, step businesses through how to build a business what? case. Yeah. Crazy talk. <laughs> is there a guide? There is. Who would have thought? Amazing. <laughs> that guide, the Tax Incentives Guide, is available at energybriefing.org.au forward slash tax dash incentives dash guide. This is a fabulous resource that Holly and the team have pulled together over the last 12 months. And as we work our way through uh, this energy apocalypse, uh, geez, I'm glad they did because because it, it could really help businesses to, to, to build the case for investments in, in big equipment upgrades that could really cut their gas and electricity use. It's really uh, important to note that the temporary full expensing tax incentive is available for assets of any value, and indeed it's available to 99% of Australian businesses. So uh, if you're sitting on the couch, get up. Go purchase something that's going to save you a lot of money, both in terms of energy efficiency savings, but also in terms of tax. The opportunity is nigh. Hey, you heard it here first, team. Uh, Holly Taylor says get off your ass and download that tax incentives guide. I didn't say get off your ass and download the tax incentives guide. Get off your ass, download the tax incentives <laughs> guide, and then go and invest in an energy upgrade and save your business bucket loads of money. Thanks, Holly. Thanks for being with us. Uh, now, back to the show. Well, it's probably a perfect segue into one of the real flagships of uh, the, the government's efforts in this space, the government investment in decarbonising industry, which I understand started as a, as a $69 million program, um, a bunch of great work done uh, under that program, but you've recently increase the funding associated with that by an order of magnitude, I think $650 million New Zealand dollars now. Do you just want to take us through, I suppose, the genesis of that program and, and why you've backed it in so significantly in the recent 
budget? Sure. So the first game was part of our um, was part of our COVID response and recovery funding that we put through in the 2020 budget of how could we stimulate um, economic activity. Um, and um, so in that budget that we put through, um, we increased funding for our warmer Kiwi homes, which was getting insulation and heat pumps into people's homes. But we also put in place this funding for industry. Well, what are some really good ideas that businesses have been thinking about? They're not going to do in time for us to meet our emissions reduction and certainly with all this uncertainty in the world they're certainly not going to do now so back then when we were putting together that budget we were really worried that a lot of the the decarbonisation plans that businesses had on their books would take a back seat um, as businesses really focused on the pandemic and the uncertainty that was swirling around um, at that time as well remember this is May 2020 when we were putting together that budget it seems a lifetime ago now incredibly successful scheme. It's set up, it's co-funded. Uh, we've leveraged a huge amount, almost twice as much private sector funding mm-hmm. to sit alongside that $70 million of government funding. Um, we've um, achieved really good emissions reductions in terms of what we have been able to um, replace out. A lot of it has been switching out coal boilers, which you get some pretty good bang for buck in terms of emissions um, that you are removing from large food processes, largely in the South Island. Um, so that has been incredibly good. That's still rolling out. Um, we've done um, all of the rounds of that scheme now. And as you said, in this year's budget, um, as well as our normal budget process, we had a, a part of that budget was um, what we call the SURF. We love an acronym in New Zealand government as much as I'm sure you do in Australia. <laughs> Not just New Zealand. <laughs> um, so the, the SURF is the Climate Emergency Response Fund. And what this is, it's, recy- it's the Recycled Emissions Trading Scheme money. So it's money that um, businesses are paying for the price on carbon when consumers are paying for the price on carbon through a variety of mechanisms. How can we reuse that money, recycle it back into our economy to make sure we're cutting emissions domestically, that we're getting good domestic abatement? And that $650 million came from there. Um, we will do, we'll work with this a bit differently than the first scheme. And we can go into that. I'm sure in some in the discussion as we get through, but it's really about upscaling this. We and the reason why we need to do this is we need to shift a lot of those projects further forward in the in the work plan of a large number of our companies. It is not going to be adequate for our emissions reductions plans if they're still a decade out. We need them to be happening now. So these investments, obviously, making it easier for for businesses to uh, to to build a business case for those significant capital upgrades. You mentioned replacing coal burners. Is there a are there metrics that you're working towards in terms of those replacements? What are the characteristics that you're looking for to justify that government? In investment, isn't it an electrification piece? Are there other metrics you're applying to it? Um, so some of it's electrification, some of it's using biomass. Um, so there's a range of options. It's, it, it, it is technology neutral. Um, what the metric that we and how we assess um, the projects that come in really is how many tons of carbon are you going to reduce by the switch and what's our cost? What's our cost per ton? What's the kind of abatement cost? So we can get down to that. So I think that's one of the critical things. I think one of the things I said to um, the chief executive of ACA when we got the new funding, you need to go out and hunt emissions. <laughs> we need to find where we can find really big pockets of emissions and that we can do some projects that actually mean that we're cutting those and we're doing them in time for the first emissions reduction budget. 
Um, And we also can't take our eye off the fact that we've got some hard-to-abate industries. These are much longer-term conversations that we need to be having those conversations that I don't want to be having those two years before the next carbon budget comes around, but working alongside them with what the long-term plan in terms of um, reinvestment in new lower carbon technology in their business, that kind of thing. How can we make sure that that happens? When I look around the world, um, some of the, one of the things that I hear about these programs is that, you know, as well as obviously the, the, uh, the direct emissions reduction, and they have a few other benefits, building, I guess, the, the skills and supply chains around some of those sort of more novel technologies. So, you know, just the, I guess, the support that business has available to them to kind of understand how that technology would work in a particular subsector of industry. But also within those subsectors, you know, if so, if nobody's ever, ever done it um, amongst the, your peer businesses, then it, it really is quite a big step to take uh, to, you know, em- embrace a new technology. But, you know, if, if it has been proven up, if someone has been supported to put it in place, whether it's a whether it's a heat pump or a biomass system or, or whatever it is, um, then there's a lot more confidence because there's not, not the chaps down the road actually uh, using this technology and it's um, and their business hasn't sort of gone by the wayside as a result. Is that, is that a part of it? It's a huge part of it, and I think the superpower of ECA being able to roll out this funding really quickly for us is that this isn't new to them. Um, that one of the core things that they've been doing for a number of years now is um, technology demonstration and working with businesses on what their plan around cutting their energy use, their their conservation and efficiency, and therefore often decarbonisation, what that looks like. So these were pre-existing relationships they had that kind of trust that these were people that um, weren't there. It's it's not, um, you know, it's not a salesman calling on you trying to sell you their product. They're trusted advisors around how this can work. And so some of the projects actually that we've got up through Giddy um, are um, some of the, the new, the new heat pump technology really common in Europe, but hasn't really been used in terms of the industrial use of heat pumps in New Zealand to a large extent. So through Giddy, we've got some of those projects up. Um, and I think that's really exciting. I mean, we're getting higher and higher temperatures in that heat, in that technology now. And I think that's one of the things that people, there's been a, a perception that some people were like, I can't change because I need the high temperature that coal provides me that I can't get any other way that I think we're seeing that technology is just evolving all the time around how that is moving. So I think that trusted relationship, but the relationships has been critical and the ability to, um, we have demonstrated some of that technology that now um, businesses did, in many, in many cases, businesses have been talking about this, but they just haven't been able to make them stack up for funding. And that it is actually, and that is where the, the case for public investment, because we all benefit, New Zealand has to meet its emissions reductions targets. They're not government targets. They're not industry targets. They are New Zealand's targets. It's we're all in this together. We have a, a, a Māori saying, he waka ikanoa, um, and that is we're all in this together and we have to be making sure that we're forming partnerships everywhere to make sure we are achieving that. Because the reality is if we don't meet our climate targets, it's going to be far more expensive to go out and buy international credits um, in perpetuity rather than investing and in cutting our own domestic emissions. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, there is, you know, obviously a role, f- role for offsets, but offsets are a, a finite, a precious re- resource, and we need to preserve them for those parts of industry around the world that really 
don't have an emissions reduction pathway, right? So when the previous government, it wasn't our government that signed up to the Paris Agreement and the targets that were set within there, there wasn't any plan of how we were going to reach those targets. A lot of it was premised on buying international carbon credits. It was still at a time when I guess people were used to the Kyoto protocols where they were cheap as chips. Why would you bother cutting your own emissions when you could go out and buy hot air emissions? And New Zealand got a lot of um, credits into its, into its emissions trading scheme that didn't have environmental integrity. They certainly didn't have climate action integrity. Um, and that um, what it did was it, it kept the price of carbon um, artificially low in New Zealand for a long time and it meant that businesses just thought about trading their way out of this Um, as you say we are going to have to do offsets, some of that will be domestic offsets but some of it will um, potentially be through international arrangements, uh, probably more bilateral than we were used to under the Kyoto Protocols but certainly um, we also have to two track this, we've got to make sure that we're actually cutting emissions in New Zealand as well. So you mentioned that there are some innovations in how to, how you're running the program compared to the the previous sort of seventy odd million dollar program to the six hundred fifty million dollar program. Did you just want to unpack that for me? Yeah. So the sixty nine million dollar program was very much about um, what happened in an individual business behind the gate. Um, so it was about replacing your boiler. It was about going and doing your switch out of technology. What we can do with the bigger scheme is in front of the gate. Um, so what do we need to do around the grid? What do we need to do with transmission to to strengthen the transmission link to a particular area? Uh, we could link this very well to regional economic development that uh, you, you get a cluster of businesses, you put a, a, a stronger, you know, a, 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 good, a good cable in for transmission, but then distribution as well. And what are the other opportunities there for that region um, that springs up? New Zealand also, as I mentioned earlier, that we have geothermal resources in New Zealand as well, that what can we do around clustering industries around um, access to their energy source? So I think there's a lot of opportunities that go beyond um, the just the emissions um, reductions, which in and of themselves are incredibly precious, but what opportunities this gives us in terms of thinking about what economic prosperity in the 21st century looks like for New Zealand. Um, Because actually one of our strategic advantages is we can produce some of the cheapest renewable energy in the world, really good wind resource, um, really good hydro assets that have been built up over generations, um, and that geothermal, solar coming more on. Big challenge for us is how do we store renewably? At the moment we rely on coal and gas. Um, as our way of storing energy for our dry years. And that's obviously some of the most expensive energy and electricity that you can produce and will only get more and more expensive. In in terms of just rounding up that conversation around the industrial space, um, I'm, I'm sure you're an observer of uh, conversations around energy and climate in, in Australia. So one of the things that state and federal governments have been quite excited about in the last two or three years has been around the role of hydrogen in that decarbonisation journey. Um, is hydrogen, you have mentioned it so far, does that play a role in New Zealand or is that something you're thinking about? Oh, absolutely. And hydrogen is a big part of what we want to do. Hydrogen, um, I think, um, offers several exciting opportunities for New Zealand. Um, one is it allows to over us to overbuild um, the renewable generation that we need to get to 100% renewable electricity. It gives us a way to monetize that overcapacity that might be required. And that can either be used domestically 
or obviously export opportunities as well. Um, we know our region um, is very interested in hydrogen, the Asia-Pacific region, incredibly interested in hydrogen as a fuel for the future. Um, New Zealand has incredibly good offshore wind potential. We have yet to tap that. One of those areas is in um, Taranaki, and Taranaki has historically been our oil and gas um, producing region, the only one really. And our government made the decision to end the issuing of new offshore permits for oil and gas um, and have put in place some just transition planning project program. Um, one operates in that region, another one at the bottom of the south where we also have incredibly strong wind resource and probably some of the best wind offshore wind resources in the world, better than even the North Sea by some people's calculations. So um, gets pretty windy at the bottom of the South Island. There's not a lot between it and Antarctica, and Indeed. wind is plenty. <laughs> so um, I think that huge potential, hydrogen dependent on that, um, we see it as really critical. We need to make sure that we're thinking about it from a systems point of view, how it fits within our energy system. I think the world has just seen um, how um, tethering to international markets can have all kinds of flow-on effects. You're feeling that very much in Australia. We sure um, and um, so we've been really engaged. I have um, run into your former Minister of Energy at a number of um, international meetings about hydrogen. Fair to say that New Zealand um, um, had more of an emphasis on green hydrogen um, and that that is where the government's priority has been and what we're looking at producing than perhaps um, had been where Australia was imagining it. But that, I think, will probably change. Um, in terms of what that imagined future looks like. I think really critical that New Zealand and Australia work together around some of those international standards around um, labelling, how it's produced, but also the transportation. Um, we're both going to be looking to export um, potentially to similar parts of the world and making sure that we're getting um, transportation um, methods that, and safety standards, uh, which will be critical that uh, that have some harmony between them, I think will be really critical. I think it's a, such a no-brainer to collaborate on that front. Um, transportation, as we know, will be a really significant component of the, the cost of the delivered cost of hydrogen. And so to the degree to which we can get harmonisation and gets consistency in those areas so that we're all we're all sort of in investing in, in the same infrastructure, that'll be incredibly helpful, right? Mm. And something that I, I want to discuss with um, my new counterpart um, in the very near future. Indeed. Well, look, uh, there's another big initiative that I, I wanted to dig into in some detail, and that's the Warmer Kiwi Homes Program, uh, which is, is targeted at more vulnerable households in New Zealand and, and has quite generous uh, support available for uh, the total cost of installing ceiling and underfloor insulation, but also approved heaters. And that's been running for a little while as well, hasn't it, Minister? Did you want to it just speak has. to that? So the, the heaters element is new, um, the efficient heat source. That's something that we added, I think, in 2019. Um, that, so it's certainly an initiative of our government um, you know, you can have the best insulation insulated home, but if you don't have an efficient and affordable way to heat it, it's still going to be a, a, a very cold house. And, I mean, it gets really cold in New Zealand, and we have, um, and I uh, probably not such an issue in Australia, but certainly um, our older housing stock um, was not built for the climate in which we live in terms of that. Oh, no, we have that problem as well. Yeah, yeah, no, you will. <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, the, I, I guess they were all premised on the fact you had open fires and that's how you heated them during the cold 
cold months. So when people came to rely on electricity, they were cold, they were damp, um, that we have a number of respiratory illnesses that were associated with those homes. So some really critical things that we had to shift. So our insulation program has been in place for many decades. Um, a lot of it um, we've has been targeted, the targeting of it has shifted over periods of time. Um, we One of the changes we made in 2017 or in 2018 when we came into government was um, that we actually regulated for our rental market and standards um, around our rental market. So we started, we pivoted the scheme rather than um, about insulating and, uh, and kind of upping the standards in a lot of our um, rental properties uh, was actually towards um, owner occupiers on limited incomes um, who didn't have the ability. I mean, Sometimes five thousand might might as well be fifty thousand um, if you don't have it. When it comes to insulating your home, one of the things that we've got because the criteria are kind of fixed income, um, own your own home, and we've got some other stuff that sits around it. But actually, what we've done is pick up picked up a whole lot of retired people where you get. Um, I mean, that's a cohort limited incomes, but home ownership, high rates of home ownership, and the health spillover benefits from making sure that that group of people are living in warm, dry homes in terms of winter respiratory illness has been really, really good. So what, what sort of numbers have you managed to uh, get through that program to date in terms of, you know, houses that have been upgraded over, over time? Look, you know, embarrassingly, I don't have that number right That's in front okay. of me, but it is hundreds of thousands of houses, like, um, over the period of time, um, and it has made a significant difference. Uh, one of the things is that, our funding is often leveraged more at a community or local level. So you might have local health authorities or other groups that say, well, look, you know, if there's 80% funding through ECA, why don't we actually find some other way to come forward with the other, another 15% or even 20% in some, rate, in some areas so that it's effectively free, which means that you're getting the uptake. And I guess the, the, the rationale for that is there is an immense public good in terms of, um, our population living in much safer, drier, healthier homes, um, the, the savings we can get into our health system are immense when we can get rid of um, the, some of the respiratory illness that we were seeing in New Zealand. I mean, we were seeing cases of rheumatic fever um, in some parts of the country, and that is not something a first world country like New Zealand should tolerate. It's a combination of overcrowding and unhealthy, uninsulated homes, and this is where we can make the difference, and we will target insulation straight into those families if we're seeing significant health issues. So these are issues that we grapple with in Australia. We're actually a, a little way behind you um, uh, in terms of addressing them. Uh, Australia, you know, again, embarrassingly, um, on a per capita basis has more deaths associated with cold than Sweden. And it's a, and a lot of that, we believe, is uh, down to Australia's very poor quality housing stock, particularly in places like Victoria and, and, and Tasmania and the like. But um, you'll, you'll be aware, Minister, that we, we had a, uh, what ultimately was quite a controversial program back in the day, which was about, around insulation upgrades associated with stimulus in the global fin financial crisis. Um, and tragically, there were a couple of deaths associ associated with that program. So... I think that governments are, you know, minded to sort of re-engage with this, with this space. There is a um, an appreciation that improving the thermal performance of our buildings is a critical success factor um, on, uh, on a whole range of fronts, um, as well as emissions reductions, as you say, health and, and comfort and quality of life. These are all things that we need to address, and it's going to be very difficult to do that without 
support from government at any sort of scale. Um, but I'm interested to know how you how you manage, I guess, the quality control in terms of rolling out insulation at, at that scale. Like what were the systems and processes and the ecosystem that you built up in a New Zealand context, which gave you confidence that you could you know, scale such a program up? So I guess longevity. Um, has been one of the the critical things that we've been able to develop those relationships and those partnerships um, so that we do partner with providers in in, um, different localities um, who then themselves have formed relationships. Some of them, like I know where I live in um, Christchurch in the South Island, that um, the the local organisation that they've partnered with, the Community Energy Action, they do some of the insulation in-house and actually they take on apprentices and they train people so that there is a bit of workforce development that goes on there but then they in turn have been able to develop and because um, this has become a scheme that has been funded by governments of all all hues which I think is one of its strengths um, to varying degrees but to be fair, it has continued, which has meant that um, what we've had is businesses that have um, they've developed strong relationships um, with businesses that do go and do the insulations. Um, if standards aren't being met, if it's not being done properly, then of course those contracts get cancelled. Um, but I think the fact that it's not um, famine or feast funding is really, really critical to it so that you can develop the, the business models that allow it to flourish. And as I said, skills training, one of the reasons why we put more funding for warmer Kiwi homes into our COVID stimulus um, package in 2020 uh, was actually because it's really easy way to get money out the door into local businesses' hands. Um, it moves quickly, unlike a lot of government procurement, which can be years in the making. Um, actually, um, fixing schools and insulating houses are some of the, the quickest ways to actually get money into local economies. So um, good, I think, good business networks have been formed around that, but it's got to have funding stability in order to do that. I love so much about what you just said. And I think one of the learnings from our experience here in Australia is you can't expect to massively ramp up this program from a standing start um, and then, you know, have it disappear. Like that is not how you're going to fix 8 million homes, which is the task we have here in Australia. It is about a long-term vision and working through that process over a period of time. But in the context as you know, we've had a couple of instances in the last uh, decade and a half where it, there has been an, um, a benefit in uh, a stimulus response from government. If you have that ecosystem established, um, you can ramp it up. And so the, the the journey to fixing all those homes doesn't necessarily need to be a, a linear trajectory. You can kind of have little um, boosts along the way where you are looking to you know support jobs, um, support local economic activity and have that dividend in terms of health and comfort and emissions reduction along the way, right? Exactly. Um, and I think that that is, it is, it is a dial that you can turn up when you need to. And I think that's really important. But I think actually one of the critical things is the workforce development that goes on in there as well, that you actually, I mean, and I mean, we certainly watched, um, you know, uh, with empathy and, um, you know, the tragedies that did occur in Australia and the, the concerns that happened there, but also what we needed to learn from it, as I know you did yourselves in Australia. What do we need to, to look at to make sure? And I think having a good trained workforce is absolutely critical. And I think that you're absolutely right. When you try and just boost something really quickly, you don't have um, those wise old heads in the uh, enough of the wise old heads in the industry that understand how to do the job and can change and can train the next generation. So I 
as always, making sure that we've got actual people trained to do the job is of vital importance. So, Minister, we, we've we've talked a bit about industrial decarbonisation. We've talked a bit about you know the the efforts that New Zealand has made to improve the the thermal performance and the efficiency of of heaters in in uh, homes around the country. Is there another sort of program in this space of energy efficiency that you're particularly proud of that you'd like to give a shout out before we wrap up? Look, one other thing I just do want to give a shout out to one of the pieces of work that that um, ECA does do with Australian counterparts is the harmonisation of our standards across energy efficient appliances. And I think that's really critical. Together, we make a really sizable market to be able to um, really say these are the standards that we need in our part of the world. Excellent. Well, look, uh, you've been very generous with your time on, on a busy day. I didn't know that you were in Parliament today. I, I feel even, even, even luckier to have uh, grabbed an hour of your time, Minister. It's been a delight to hear about everything that's happening in, in New Zealand at the moment. I think there's a, a lot that we can draw inspiration from, but also there's things that we're doing that I'm sure New Zealand is, is watching closely and can, can, uh, can similarly learn from. It's an incredibly close relationship. And I think we, with two governments, um, that are, you know, pulling in the same direction and given our geographic uh, proximity, our, our, um, our strong friendship, you know, hopefully there's, we can just strengthen the relationship between our two nations and, and move forward and faster together. Thanks, Luke. And absolutely, um, really value the relationship. And thanks for the opportunity to come on and have a chat. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. And Minister Woods is at Megan underscore Woods, and my handle is at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management, demand response, you can find the Energy Efficiency Council at eec.org.au. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And to learn more about the show, including upcoming live recordings, visit ec.org.au forward slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye from us, and we'll catch you soon. Thank you.